Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm going to invite the kids and students to stand. We'll bless you and send you to your classes. And uh, parents, adults, if you'll join me in this blessing for our kids. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Heavenly Father, we bless our kids and our students as they go to their classes. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would imprint on their hearts, uh, Lord, to love you with all of their heart and all their soul and all of their mind, and Lord, to love their neighbor as themselves, and Lord, that that would be the mark of their lives. Uh, so bless them, bless their leaders and their teachers, Lord, be with them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to say just a word. Uh, there's been some, certainly a lot of things in the news lately, and uh, some folks have asked me about the decision of the Supreme Court and things like that, and so I just want to make a simple statement this morning that uh, it really doesn't change anything that we do. Uh, our mission at North is to love God, to love one another, and love the world. And uh, so far, that seems to be working and still seems to be okay. Uh, and our uh, position on marriage is actually in our bylaws. It's in our constitutions, how we are incorporated. Uh, so that's all in place, but uh, really what's most important for us uh, is what God's called us to do and who he's called us to be, and I think that this is probably the best time, the greatest time in our generation uh, to have a mission that says we're going to love God, that we're going to be all in, that we're going to love him, uh, that we are going to learn what it means to love one another uh, and, and do that well and take it seriously. And then we want to love the world. And what does it look like today uh, in our culture, in our environment? What does it look like for us to be people uh, who take the love of Christ and live that out uh, in the world? So with that in mind, uh, we're going to continue this morning uh, as, uh, as I've talked and then tr um, Wes did a great job last week, by the way, but uh, we're going to stay in Daniel again this week. We've been talking a little bit about what it means to live a believing life in an unbelieving culture, and uh, I want to continue with that idea. Uh, it seems like uh, reading from Daniel that was, you know, written 2,500 years ago wouldn't have much to say about today, but it's remarkable uh, how history repeats itself. It's remarkable uh, how current the scripture always is for us. Uh, so we're, we're going to look at a story that's really another story. It's very familiar, very well known, uh, I'm sure, to most of you. Um, in fact, I was thinking about it this week, and how many of you have ever used the phrase or heard the phrase uh, it, that uh, we all have clay feet? Or he has feet of clay, and it's it referring to somebody that appears to be great, powerful, whatever, or or healthy, and but at the end of the day, we all have clay feet. We're all vulnerable. Uh, we've used that phrase um, a lot. The, the, another phrase that we've used or that we've heard is, um, he, you know, he saw the handwriting on the wall. 
there's the handwriting on the wall, and it's become a phrase that we use to say, you know what, he looked, he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he decided it was time to go get it out of the job, move to another team, go to another city, whatever it was. Uh, and, and so it's a phrase that tells us that change is coming, that we've seen the future, and uh, it's not looking great, let's move somewhere else, let's do something different. And so we use that phrase, and that's the phrase that's sort of one of the themes of, of this study this morning. It's out of Daniel, the fifth chapter, and we're going to look at the story of the handwriting, the writing uh, on the wall. And, and it begins like this. Let me set a little bit of context. Uh, we've studied, as you look at the beginning of Daniel, you have King Nebuchadnezzar. After him, there's another king and another king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then there's Belshazzar, who shows up in this story uh, today. And, and so the story begins with Belshazzar, who throws a huge party in Babylon. Uh, and he throws a party for a thousand nobles and, their, and, and rulers and their wives and their concubines, it says. And they're going to throw this big party. And so they get all of these people together. I'm assuming they're in the palace. Uh, they're going to have this um, great tribute to Belshazzar. He's going to demonstrate his wealth. He's going to demonstrate his power. Uh, he's going to be the fun king. Uh, he's going to be the king that rewards all these people. To be invited to this party is a big deal. He throws a party, and as he begins the party, what typically happens is that the king will drink the first uh, sip of wine, and, and that kind of starts the whole thing. Well, as Belshazzar uh, drinks the first sip of wine. He decides he doesn't like the cups uh, that they're drinking wine out of, so he sends his servants to go and raid Nebuchadnezzar's museum. I don't know if you knew he had one, but Nebuchadnezzar had a museum. He had a place that he would keep all the precious artifacts and things, and he, he sent his uh, his servants to the museum, to this place where he kept all the artifacts, and he said, I want you to get all the chalices and all the cups that, that King Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem, all of the gold things that he took, and I want you to bring those, and we're going to party with those today. And so they went and got them, and they started uh, to drink out of those, and they started to party uh, out of those things, and uh, as they're in their revelry, uh, as they're in their partying, uh, as, as Belshazzar's feeling pretty good about himself, something pretty unique happens. Uh, suddenly, there's handwriting. Uh, a hand appears, and there begins to be some writing on the wall. Mine Mine Telek Parson And there's a great scene when this hand comes and the writing comes on the wall because suddenly the, the, the scripture says that Belshazzar changed color I'm pretty sure he lost all color. He, he turned white. Uh, but the color of his face changed. And, and it says that the thoughts in his mind alarmed him, and his knees started to buckle. 
And, and so what happens is that this handwriting comes in the wall, and here's the great Belshazzar. Here's the guy throwing a party for a thousand people, showing off his wealth, showing off his power, showing off his fame, and suddenly this hand comes, and there's writing on the wall, and it completely undoes Belshazzar. He loses all the color in his face. His knees start to wobble. He's scared to death. And so immediately he calls, just as his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar did before in Daniel 2, he calls for the enchanters and the sorcerers and the astrologers, and he calls them all in, and he says, this has happened, and I want to find who can translate this, who can interpret this handwriting on the wall for me, and whoever can do it, I'm going to put a purple robe on them, I'm going to put a gold uh, necklace around their neck, and I'm going to make them the third most powerful person uh, in the kingdom. So I want somebody to translate this and when the sorcerers and the enchanters and, and the astrologers all looked at the wall and they saw what was written up there uh, they all agreed none of them could interpret it none of them knew what it said and they were at a loss for what to do and suddenly the queen we're assuming from history that this is the queen mother this is Belshazzar's mom that she comes into the party at this point she hadn't been invited to the party she wasn't in attendance but she heard what happened and she comes into the party it's always interesting you can learn a lot about parties by who's invited and who's not invited Daniel wasn't invited. The queen mother wasn't invited. Apparently, it was not the kind of party you want to bring your mom to. And, uh, but she comes in, and she says, okay, they can't interpret this dream, but there's one man that can. There's this one man from Judah, uh, very wise. He did this for Nebuchadnezzar. He's still here, and he can interpret this dream. He has this gift. He has this ability to interpret this dream. And so they immediately call for Daniel. Daniel's an older man now. He served, Belshazzar, he served Nebuchadnezzar. There have been three kings now since then. He is still there, but he's not uh, center to the story anymore in Babylon. Uh, he's been moved off to the side, but he's been there a long time. He's a man with great reputation, great influence. They bring him in, and this is where we're going to pick up the story in Daniel 5 when Daniel, the prophet, is brought in to the middle of this group. This thousand people having a party who are now looking at the handwriting on the wall. And here's what it says in Daniel 5.13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard... Uh, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods, notice small g, the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But what I have heard is that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make it known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Awesome. Daniel, it's another shot back in the limelight, back at the center of attention. If you can just interpret this, you did it before. If you can do it again, then you're going to get a gold, you're going to get a purple robe, you're going to get a gold chain around your neck, uh, you're going to be the third most important person in the kingdom. All of that, if you can just interpret what was written on the wall. 
And so this is the beginning of the story. What, what we remember uh, about Babylon is that Nebuchadnezzar was the great king. He was the first one to go and to, and, and to destroy Jerusalem. He took exiles with him back to Babylon. They tried to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. But there were these young Jewish men, Daniel, Mish, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that, that continued to follow God, that continued to be faithful. And they were blessed and they prospered. And, and those early stories in the book, of Daniel are all about their lives and now we come back and Daniel's an older man he's brought back in and he before he tells Belshazzar what is written on the wall he's going to give him just a little bit of a history lesson it's always good to get a little bit of a history lesson isn't it here's what he says when Daniel answered and he said before the king here's the first thing he said let your gifts be for yourself and give your words to another Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So the first thing that Daniel says is, I don't need your gifts. I don't need the recommendation. Let that be for somebody else. But yes, I will tell you what those words mean. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory. You remember whenever the Old Testament, New Testament talks about father, often, there, in fact, one time in, in, in the Gospels, there was a blind man and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, that often they would talk about ancestors and heritage. And, and so um, Daniel is talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but he talks to him about as the ancestor, the father. And so he says that your, your father, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his kingship, and greatness, and glory, and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, nations, and languages trembled, and they feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was filled up, and his spirit was hardened, uh, that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him, and he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was like wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over it whom, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to it. He says, you... You um, have not humbled your heart, and you knew all of this stuff. You knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So the very first thing that Daniel does is he gives him a little history lesson. I want you to remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And you knew all of this, 
but you've chosen to be arrogant. You've chosen to flaunt your power. You, you've chosen to try to create an image of who pe you want people to think you are. Uh, you, you feel like if you just look powerful enough, if you look wealthy enough, if you look great enough, then you must be all of those things and everybody will think that about you. And so he holds this great party and he defiles uh, all of those uh, things that came from the temple in Jerusalem. He sort of mocks God and he worships other gods and now Daniel says there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a time when God will no longer tolerate this and the time has come for Belshazzar. Verse 24, it says this, then from his presence, from God's presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was, that was inscribed, mine, mine, tekel, um, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it, um, has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. When you repeat words uh, in the ancient languages like that, you do it for emphasis. So he is saying that your kingdom, I want you to understand that your kingdom is coming to an end. And then tekel, uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, that I'm exposing you that you want to look powerful, you want to look great, but I'm exposing you that compared to the God of the universe, compared to the great God, you don't weigh very much, you're not of very much importance, that you have been weighed and found wanting. And then the last uh, thing that he says, verse 28, Peres, which is uh, not a typo, but it's actually the singular form of the plural parson. So he says, Peres, uh, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, that you're going to lose your kingdom, that your kingdom is coming to an end, that you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and now your kingdom is going to be divided. <laughs> Listen to verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He still doesn't get it. He still thinks this is about him. He still thinks this is about how he looks, about how he's perceived. It's about his wealth and his power. And so he feels like, thinks he can make all of this right. Daniel has just said, your kingdom is coming to an end. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Uh, that you're, you're going to be conquered. You're going to be taken over. And he says, oh, awesome, thank you. Let me give you a purple robe and I put a gold chain around your neck and I'm going to make you the third most powerful person in this kingdom that's just about to go away. How about that? He still doesn't get it. He still thinks it's about him. Verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Little age reference just for uh, history's sake. But that very night, Babylon was overtaken without a fight, w without a battle. The Medo-Persian army came and took over Babylon, and, and the kingdom was wiped out, was no longer. Belshazzar is killed and a new king is put on the throne, a new regime, a new kingdom. All of that's changed in one night. But what's the story for us? What's the message for us in, the, in, this, in this story of Belshazzar, the story of Daniel, the handwriting on the wall? I'd like you to think about... And, encourage you to think about three things this morning 
that we would get from this story. Uh, these three things. The first thing is trust God's word. Uh, the second thing is to remember God's word. And the third thing is to walk in God's word. To trust God's word, to remember God's word, and to walk in God's word. Let's start with this idea of trusting God's word. Uh, you, you know, for years, hundreds of years, the, the um, <clears throat> scholars, people would use the book of Daniel as uh, an excuse to say that the Bible is just mythology, that the Bible's not true, that there was nobody named Belshazzar, there was no king named Belshazzar, that there was Nebuchadnezzar, and then the next two kings were assassinated, and then there was a king named Nabonidus, and he was the last king uh, of Babylon, and so this Belshazzar uh, just proves that, that uh, this is all a myth, and somebody just fabricated it, and we can't believe anything in the Bible, and, and uh, so a uh, funny thing happened that in, in about um, 1865, um, uh, someone found, an archaeologist found, what's now called the Nabonidus Cylinders, there are these clay cylinders. Uh, that's an that's a actual one that's in the um, museum um, uh, in London, the London Museum. And uh, it's a history uh, of the Babylonians from uh, this King Nabonidus's time. Now, imagine that you're a freshman in college and you go to a public college, let's just say, and... Uh, you in, in uh, comparative world religions and your professor gets up and he talks about the Bible and Christianity and he says, you can't believe any of that. It's all mythology. Uh, none of it really happened. Let me prove my point. If, let's go to Daniel 5 and it talks about this king named Belshazzar. He never existed. He's not in any of the history. He's not part of it. So all of this is mythology. You can't believe it. It mustn't be true. And you're 18 years old and you walk out of that class thinking, wow, everything I've ever been taught must be wrong. It's not true. Now what do I do? And not knowing that in 1865, this this interesting cylinder was made that had the history of an ancient country. And in 1989, a man named Paul Elaine Ballou, who was an Assyriologist, I'm not making this up, an Assyriologist actually translated uh, this cylinder. And on this cylinder, it talks about King Nabonidus who worshiped these gods. His mother was actually a priestess uh, in a temple to one of the many gods that they worshiped. And he went on a spiritual pilgrimage to worship his gods. And while he was gone, he put his son as the acting king in Babylon. And you know his son's name was Belshazzar. And the last king, the, the person who was reigning in uh, Babylon when the Medo-Persian army came and took over was King Belshazzar. So all of those professors, were all, they all wrote apologies to those students that they had had in their classes, right? Yeah, no, that didn't happen. But here's the lesson. Trust God's word. You can trust God's word. I remember when I was in college, somebody telling me that every year, scholars are translating 
things, new things. Archaeologists are finding new things. And the longer we live, the more we see how all of these things in God's word um, are reliable, how all of these things are true. In fact, this Paul Elaine Ballou, his dissertation that he wrote when he translated this cylinder was uh, it wasn't comp- looking at the Babylonian Empire from wars and kings, but it was looking at it and its corroboration with the book of Daniel. That's what he was so intrigued with. That apparently uh, Daniel knew more about the history of Babylon than modern scholars did for years and years and years. That that's what we know now and that you can trust the Bible. You can trust what the scripture says and Matthew 24, 35 reminds us that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That kingdoms will come and go, but the word of God will never go, and we can trust God's word. And so when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, we can trust God's word. It's been reliable throughout all of the centuries. When God's word says, love one another as I have loved you, we better pay attention to it because God's word is reliable. It always has been, and it will be. You can trust God's word. You can bet your life on God's word. You can build your life on God's word. You know, it's remarkable is that when Jesus was tempted, read Matthew 4 when you get home today, and when Jesus was tempted, the very first thing that Jesus said was to quote scripture, was to remind Satan of what the Bible said, that he trusted, he trusted God's word. Well, the second thing is to remember God's word. In verse in Daniel 5:22, I told you to pay attention to that. He says, "And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this." So what we find out that Belshazzar knew all of these stories. He knew of God's faithfulness to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He knew the story of his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar, but he either chose to ignore it or he had completely forgotten all of those lessons because he wasn't paying attention. He wasn't living it out. He didn't remember that, uh, God's word. He didn't remember what God had done. And so we're called not only to trust God's word, but we're called to remember God's word. So 2 Corinthians 3.3 says this, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of uh, the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That here's what he says, that God's word is written in our hearts, that God wants us to remember his word so that as we live, as we go out in the world, we are a love letter from God to the world that so desperately needs him. And so we are called not only to trust God's word, but we're called to remember his word. Uh, That's why as we were looking at at the uh, signs that Jesus gave us in John we were reminded in John 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He said that you can trust the Bible and you need to remember the Bible because when we remember, we remember God's faithfulness. 
We remember how Jesus stopped when the religious leaders threw a woman that had been caught in the act of adultery and how Jesus treated her, how he responded, how he responded to those, uh, to those religious leaders, to those Pharisees, how he said, let he is without uh, sin cast the first stone and they all had to leave. And then he looked down at the woman and he said, where are those who condemn you? And, and she said, they're not here. And he said, neither, I, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Change your life. Do this differently. And we need to remember God's word because all of those things are put in us to instruct us, to teach us how to live, uh, to teach us what to do so that when we come in times of great stress in our lives, when we come at times of great trial in our lives, we remember God's word. That's the first thing that comes to our mind. And finally, that's why in, in Psalm 119 uh, verses nine, starting verse nine, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word, remembering God's word. And then in verse 11, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, that we're called to remember God's word. And then finally, we're called to uh, walk in his word. Uh, a friend of mine was in China recently, and he was sharing all the changes and the amazing things that he had seen. And one of the things that he thought was pretty funny is that they were just, they're, they're, they're just in, insane. The general Chinese population are just insane about celebrities. And so when you're there, you're an American, the first thing they want to know, do you know Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber? That was their, that was their questions. And, and uh, he could honestly say no, and he was proud of that. Um, but he... Uh, he said the most amazing thing that he saw in China was the church. And uh, he said he got to teach uh, the Bible in a church. He was a little embarrassed, he said, because he didn't bring a Bible with him. He was afraid. He'd heard all these stories. He was afraid if he brought a Bible, he'd get arrested. So he just had his Bible and his iPhone. And he said they all laughed at him. And somebody loaned him a Bible so he could teach with a, a, a real Bible. Uh, and so he taught them. And, and here's what he, one of the things he said to them. He said, I'm going to pray for you guys. I'm going to pray that there will be less, um, I'm going to pray that, that it gets easier here, that I know you're under a lot of persecution, I know it's hard. I'm going to pray that it gets easier. I'll pray that there'll be less pressure, and I'll pray that they face fewer restrictions and have more safety. And that's what he thought. And he was sort of rebuked, he was challenged by the people that he was speaking to, and they said, please don't pray that for us. Here's what we'd like you to pray. Pray that we get stronger. Pray that we get bolder. And pray that we grow deeper in Christ. Pray for those three things. Pray that we get stronger. Pray that we get bolder. And pray that we grow deeper in Christ. He, he went on to say that, that this is a place uh, where the government and the schools are officially promote, officially promote atheism, that there are over 1.3 billion people in China and not one of them becomes a Christian because it's convenient. He said that a researcher at Purdue University estimates that there are currently 80 million Christians in China and that in 15 years, there'll be 245 million Christians in China. He said that means that there'll be more Christians in China than any other country in the world. And he said there are unbelievable things that are going on in China. He said that the strange thing about the church there is that the steeper the challenge, the higher the price, the greater the demand, the more noble the church. The church is usually at its best when the world around it is at its worst. And then this friend of mine said, I thought about us and I wondered, where do you think it's harder to be the church 
in China or here. And he said, I, I want to tell you that, that the Bible says our mission is. The Bible tells us that our mission is to be the light of the world. This morning we're talking about the fact that our mission is to trust God's word, to remember God's word, and to walk in God's word. And, and you know, I, I get it that we, that we rage over you know, things that happen in our culture and happen in our own country and decisions that are made and things like this, but let me just tell you that it's not okay to rage about a bad Supreme Court decision and then go gossip about your neighbor. It's just not okay to do that. It's not okay to rage about all the bad things that are going on in our country and in our culture and then to go on the internet or, and watch things that you have no business watching or to watch movies that you have no business watching. It's just not okay to do that. Uh, it, it's, it's not okay to rage against all of the wrongs that are happening in our world and, and then go and live as though it all belongs to you and it's all about you and that you're the center of the universe. It's just not okay to do that. Now, here's what I think. I think this might be the greatest opportunity in our generation to, to, to trust in God's word and to remember God's word and to walk in God's word and to be his people and to trust him and to love him and to live for him. And so what that means for us this morning is that we are at a point where we need to take our faith in Jesus Christ really seriously. We need to take it really seriously. And it's not so that we can be like Belshazzar and impress people with our greatness or impress people with what we have, but it's so that Jesus will be lifted up. It's so that Christ will be made known. It's so that people who are living in darkness, people who are living in struggles and in, in hard things and people who are lost will see the light of Christ in our lives, both as individuals and as a church family, and will be drawn to that light that is Jesus Christ. And as he's lifted up, he draws people unto him and it's a great opportunity for us to be a picture of Jesus to the world but we need to take our faith really seriously and, and that includes taking the scripture really seriously that we need to trust God's word we need to believe God's word it's not okay to take the parts of God's word that we agree with or that we like and to leave the rest out but we need to take it all seriously and as I said earlier, that means when the Bible says to love your neighbor as I loved you, we need to take the Bible really seriously. We need to say, I'm gonna give my life to you. I'm gonna give my life to that call. When it says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind, we need to take that seriously. We need to give ourselves to that. We need to be all in for the cause of Christ, to lift him up. We need to trust the word of God and we need to remember the word of God, and we need to walk in the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And Lord, you have spoken to us through Daniel, a 2,500-year-old story, Lord, that is so relevant to today, so important for us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us, encourage us, whatever it is that we need, that, that, Lord, we might trust your word. 
that, Lord, we might remember your word and that we might walk in your word. It's for your glory, Lord, not for ours. It's for the sake of your kingdom that we ask this. And Lord, we'll give you all the honor and all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.